Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Hello, my name is Andreas Gledhill KC and welcome to today's podcast, The Ghost in the Machine, Good Faith in Contract After Recompound Photonics. One of the most contentious issues in the law of obligations for about the last 10 years has been the role of good faith in contract law. When is an obligation of good faith implied? And in cases where it is either implied or expressly agreed, what is its scope? What standard of behaviour does a duty of good faith bind the parties to? That's the issue which I'm going to address in this podcast with particular reference to an October 2022 decision of the Court of Appeal in a case called Re-Compound Photonics Group, which I'll just call Compound for short. I represented the defendants in that case. They lost at first instance following a four-week trial, but they then won on appeal, having persuaded the Court of Appeal that the trial judge had taken an overbroad approach to the scope of an express duty of good faith in the relevant agreement. Starting with a little bit of background and to put what follows in context, in many legal systems, the duty of good faith is recognized as a general organizing principle of contract law. Article 1104 of the French Civil Code, for example, provides that contracts must be negotiated, entered into and performed in good faith. And the same is true in the United States. Paragraph 205 of the second restatement of contracts states that every contract imposes upon each party a duty of good faith and fair dealing in its performance and enforcement. English common law has historically trodden a different path, however, reflecting a greater emphasis on freedom of contract. As Professor Jack Beetson once wrote, the default position in this jurisdiction is that all that is not prohibited is permitted and there is no general doctrine of abuse of rights. If a person is permitted to do something, he will generally be allowed to do it for any reason or for none. Things have moved on since that was written 30 years ago, however, in two respects that matter for present purposes. First, in 2013, Lord Leggett, when still sitting at first instance, delivered his seminal judgment in Yam Seng against the International Trade Corporation, which holds that other things being equal, a duty of good faith will be implicit in what he termed a relational contract. Second, the decision in Yam Seng seems to have had a disinhibiting effect on those who draft contracts, with the consequence that express duties of good faith now frequently feature, both in agreements that require the parties to cooperate for the long term, such as joint venture and shareholder agreements, and also in contracts that provide for one party to take decisions which potentially impact the rights of the other. For example, valuation decisions in the context of closeout in the ISDA master agreement. The difficulty with all this, however, is that there has, to date, been little clarity about what a duty to act in good faith actually involves as a matter of English law. If you look at the standard textbook on equity in England, Snell, you'll see that it tells you that a duty of good faith means that you can't act in bad faith. But that's little more than a tautology. What does it mean? 
Specifically, does a duty to act in good faith simply mean that one has to be honest or to act in a moral way in some more general sense? Or does it go wider than that and impose more granular performance level requirements? For example, to observe objective standards of due process when exercising rights to the detriment of your counterparty. Back in the mid 1990s, Lord Millet famously complained in a case called Mothew against Bristol and West Building Society that the law in relation to fiduciary obligations had become bedeviled by unthinking resort to verbal formulae. And prior to the Court of Appeal's decision in compound, in my opinion, much the same could have been said of the English case law in relation to the concept of good faith. In very broad summary, what had happened was this. Starting in the early 1990s, the concept of an implied duty of good faith began to gain traction in Australian contract law under the influence of the American jurisprudence, which I mentioned earlier. And in a series of cases culminating with a New South Wales Court of Appeal decision called Macquarie, the Australian courts evolved a prescriptive list of what that implied duty of good faith entailed, which included subsidiary duties of fidelity to the spirit of the bargain, fair dealing, and to have due regard to the interests of one's counterparty. That Australian analysis first began to make itself felt here in a 2007 decision of Mr Justice Morgan called Barclay Community Villages Against Pullen, which seems to have been the first occasion when an English court had to consider the scope of an express duty of good faith. And there then followed a series of other English decisions, mainly but not entirely at first instance, concerning express good faith clauses building on Mr Justice Morgan's decision, with the upshot being eventually in a case called Unwin, that our courts arrived at a rigid list of subsidiary duties, very similar to the one arrived at by the Australian courts, all of which were said to represent the minimum standards of good faith conduct irrespective of the wider commercial context against the background of which the relevant contract had been concluded. There were two aspects of this that became increasingly troublesome as this line of cases evolved. First, in this jurisdiction, it is about as clear as it could be that there is no concept of the spirit of a contract which is somehow divorced from the terms of the agreement, rather like the smile on the face of the Cheshire Cat. Our approach to construction is objective. The contract means what it says, no more and no less. So to the extent a duty of good faith is said to command obedience to the spirit of the bargain, what exactly does that mean? And what does it add to the obligation to comply with the other express or implied duties the parties have already agreed to assume? Second, to the extent the duty of good faith is said to involve process duties, for example, a duty to somehow take account of the interests of one's counterparty, how does that work? Take the case of a duty of good faith in a shareholder agreement. The way in which shareholders take decisions are prescribed by the provisions of the legislation and the company's articles. Things are in general terms decided by votes at meetings, and a majority shareholder has to cast his vote in what he believes to be the interest of the company. But provided he honestly does that, the orthodox position is that he can vote to further his own interests over those of other shareholders, and there is no obligation to somehow take into account the interests of people who disagree with him 
or whose interests may diverge from his. Those issues were front and centre of the argument in Compound. That case concerned an express duty of good faith in a shareholder agreement between the majority investors, who I acted for, and the minority shareholders. Simplifying the facts considerably for brevity, the business was a tech startup which had been founded by the CEO, who was one of the minority shareholders. The articles gave him special rights and privileges. For example, no board resolution could be passed without the CEO's agreement. And they also conferred certain protections on the minority shareholders more generally. For example, parity of representation at board level. Following repeated failures to hit agreed milestones, the majority shareholders became dissatisfied with the CEO. So they removed him from the board and they sacked him as an employee, to which the minorities responded by launching proceedings under the Companies Act, claiming unfair prejudice. They said that the CEO's continuation in office was fundamental to their original agreement to invest. They argued that he was the jockey they had originally agreed to back, such that his ouster violated the spirit of the party's bargain. They also said that the CEO had been sacked in a procedurally unfair way, because the news he had to go was sprung on him at a meeting without his having time to argue his corner properly. And they argued that all that amounted to a breach of the express duty of good faith in the shareholders' agreement, even though that agreement said nothing more specific about the CEO having a right to remain in post, irrespective of whether the majority shareholders lost confidence in him. The trial judge sustained those arguments, but the Court of Appeal overturned him. The leading judgment was Lord Justice Snowden's, with whom the other two members of the court agreed, and there are five main points to get out of it. First, the judge reaffirmed that questions as to the scope of a duty of good faith in any given contract are determined and determined only by construing that specific contract on ordinary principles. They are not answered by looking at previous decisions purporting to reach conclusions about the, quote, minimum standards, unquote, which the duty of good faith has been found to entail in other legal contexts. And the judge in the Court of Appeal particularly stressed the dangers of relying in this context on the Australian case law, making the point that since the early 1990s, it has simply gone off in a different direction under the influence of the American jurisprudence. Second, Lord Justice Snowden held that the core duty imported by an obligation of good faith is simply an obligation of honesty. So if one party to a contract behaves dishonestly towards the other in a relevant way, other things being equal, the first party will be in breach of a duty of good faith, subject to the important qualification that dishonesty is an objective question in the sense discussed in the Royal Brunei line of cases. So it's no answer to say you didn't realize that what you did was dishonest because you operate under some divergent moral code which is unique to you. Third, although Lord Justice Snowden identified honesty as the core component of the duty of good faith, he did accept it might go rather wider than that. Following a careful review of the English case law, 
he left the door open to the possibility that conduct was, which was commercially unacceptable might breach a duty of good faith, even if not dishonest by ordinary standards. And I'll return to that point at the end of this talk. But for now, the key thing to note is that the judge held that whether a duty of good faith does go beyond honesty, the core duty, will be a question of construction in each case. There's nothing automatic about it. Fourth, the judge cast doubt on dicta in the previous case law to the effect that the duty of good faith imports an obligation of fidelity to the bargain. If you read his judgment, I think it's pretty clear that he wasn't enthusiastic about the idea that good faith operates to protect some disembodied spirit of the contract, the smile on the face of the Cheshire Cat. But he didn't reach a firm landing on that point, because he thought it was quite clear that the bargain the parties had actually struck in compound permitted the majority shareholders to remove the CEO in the way that they had. So even if the duty of good faith did mandate fidelity to the spirit of the bargain, that spirit had not, on the facts of compound, been violated. But, fifth and finally, the judge did come down firmly against the suggestion that a duty of good faith imports what I've referred to as process duties. He made the point that if you look at the authorities which have previously suggested to the contrary, they are all cases in which equitable considerations have been in play expulsion cases in partnership or quasi-partnership cases, for example, where the parties stand in a fiduciary relationship to one another. But he was at pains to emphasize that outside that context, things are different. Absent circumstances giving rise to a Braganza-type duty of rational decision-making, commercial parties do not have to have regard to each other's interests or adhere to generalized standards of fair and open dealing. And the position is no different if they owe each other an express or an implied duty of good faith. Good faith is, in effect, the duty of conscience. It's simply not there to impose granular performance level obligations. So much for the Court of Appeals decision. Wrapping things up, what are the lessons to learn from it? I think the key point is this. I said a moment ago that one thing you get out of compound is that an obligation of good faith can be breached by commercially unacceptable conduct, which falls short of dishonesty. But you won't find much guidance in the decision as to what sort of behavior actually counts for that purpose. Some of the preceding cases discussed in compound talk about good faith precluding, I quote, a cynical resort to the black letter of the contract. Others talk about good faith barring conduct that undermines the substance of the bargain, but all of this is pretty vague stuff. So while the Court of Appeals decision clearly curtails the scope of the duty of good faith as previously understood, there remains room for argument in future about whether a party has acted in breach on the facts of any given case. Now that may be encouraging news for litigators. But for transactional lawyers, it does rather beg the question, why draft an agreement to include an obligation which remains so uncertain in scope? And that is particularly so if what you're really trying to do is to safeguard your client's ability to walk away from a long-term collaborative venture if it later turns out that the counterparty is untrustworthy. There are orthodox ways of achieving that goal, 
without invoking the problematic concept of good faith, most obviously by means of representations and warranties. So I would suggest the moral is this. Either don't include express duties of good faith in an agreement at all, if you're a transactional lawyer documenting a contract, or if you do, at least make sure your client is aware of the potential difficulties that may be caused down the line by the inclusion of what seems likely to remain a rather uncertain concept. If they're happy to sign up to an agreement knowing it contains an unguided missile, then fine. But they may have good grounds for complaint if they're not warned about it in advance and a couple of years down the line, the unguided missile suddenly lands on them. Thank you for listening to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Subscribe below to receive our latest episodes and visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more.